Art of the Cut is brought to you by FilmTools.com, your one-stop shop for production and post-production gear. Be sure to listen for an exclusive site-wide offer later in the show. Hello, and welcome to the Art of the Cut podcast. I'm Steve Hallfish. I'm a feature film editor and discuss the art and craft of film editing with my colleagues in film and TV. Today, again, I have the pleasure of interviewing Harry Yoon, ACE. We last spoke about the editing of his film, The Best of Enemies. We also spoke about the movie Detroit, which he co-edited with William Goldenberg, ACE. Harry was an additional editor on First Man with editor Tom Cross and is an additional editor on The Last Black Man in San Francisco, all movies featured on Art of the Cut in the past. This time, we're discussing the film Minari, which he edited and that has drawn critical acclaim and buzz as a contender for Best Picture at this year's Oscars. Man, it's good to talk to you again. I love Minari. Wow. Oh, great. I mean, I can see why there's an Oscar buzz about this movie. Oh, man. I can definitely see why there's an Oscar buzz. Tell me a little bit about getting connected with this director. How did that happen? The introduction came through Christina O, who is a producer at Plan B. And I met Christina because we worked together on Last Black Man in San Francisco. From the first time we had a conversation, we really sort of hit it off just because we were both Korean-Americans, sort of 1.5 generation that had grown up and worked our way up in the industry and both had a passion for telling Asian-American stories, but also knew that like we kind of had to find the right one one that satisfied the artistic and commercial ambitions that we both had too. So after Last Black Man, which was a really positive experience and we all became like family during that project, I was an additional editor. I joined David Marks, who was on through most of the beginning of post-production. And then I came on and helped them get to the finish line. She called me while I was on Euphoria and she said, I read a lot of Asian American scripts about the immigrant experience, but this one's really special. It's about a Korean-American family, and I can't think of anybody else that I think would be better to edit it. And so when you get a call like that, you, you're you like, yeah, that's the dream. Your ears perk up. Exactly. And it was through her that I was introduced to Isaac. We had a number of conversations. He was actually finishing up a teaching job in Seoul, Korea at the time. So he's from the States, but he was visiting professor there. And so even with the time difference, we had some really great conversations about the script and about how meaningful it would be for both of us, because we are contemporaries. Our families moved over in like late 70s, early 80s. We both grew up as kids who were part of that Korean diaspora over here and with immigrant families that worked really hard to get to that next rung on the ladder of the American dream. And so we had a lot that we shared and a lot to talk about. And that's how we met and got to work together. And it, it was like a dream. I think for every editor, particularly ones that work in features, you dream about meeting the Scorsese to your Thelma, you know, (laughs) (laughs) you you dream about like those people that you just have that creative and personality compatibility with. I feel really blessed that I was able to meet Isaac and hopefully we'll be able to collaborate together on his future films. I watched a little bit of a Q&A session from the Hawaii Film Festival. So I know that they shot in Oklahoma, just outside of Arkansas, right? Correct. Yeah. In the same sort of region. But yeah, it was right outside of Tulsa. So for Isaac, it was very important to get the landscape right, because 
the land is such a character in the film and it has a kind of almost mythic meaning, especially for the lead character played by Stephen Yoon. And so I think he wanted the feel of that to be correct. And so they definitely wanted to shoot in an area that landscape-wise was similar to what he grew up in when he was in Arkansas. And the other considerations were probably more logistical, I would think. I think practical too. I think they were thinking about shooting in Georgia for a while. And then I think Plan B and A24 moved a lot of their stuff to Oklahoma because they had similar tax credits. And Oklahoma City, for some reason, because a lot of productions were doing that, was kind of saturated. And so they found a little more room in the Tulsa area. And also the landscape of the Tulsa area was more akin to what he was looking for. Yeah. And then where were you? I was in Los Angeles. A24 has a general cutting room that they use for some of their spaces. That's sort of a converted warehouse that used to be an exterminator's office. And so... You see, on the outside, it says anyone exterminators or something like that. Uh, and so it looks super nondescript. And like the one sort of questionable decorative detail they kept were all the pictures of the beetles and the bugs and stuff like that. Like, you walk in and you've got like murderer's row of bugs that they used to hunt down. And that's how you're welcomed into the facility. It was great. It was very intimate because... It was just me and my assistant editor, Irene Chun, in that smaller warehouse space for a long time. And so it felt like kind of having the luxury of your own extended cutting room. So it was nice. I love it. And then you were getting dailies through the internet or pics or... Yeah, we came up with a system where we had a really incredible jack-of-all-trades DIT on set. We were just so lucky with some of the people that we got. And he was, our DIT was also Korean-American as well. And he just not only was the DIT on set, but also sort of did a lot of the conversion, used his own internet out of an apartment that he was renting to upload the dailies so that our assistant editor, Irene Chun, could download them every night. So he would upload them at night and then we would download them in the morning. And we used a particular flavor of Aspera to get that done through our app vendor. And then how much interaction did you have with the director during dailies? Or was you just head down getting stuff done production-wise? Quite a bit, actually. I think this is often the case with low-budget indie productions. I think you do have the opportunity to play a big part because the production is always resource-constrained. They always have a plan, but they're never able to get 100% of the plan. And so I think pretty much on a weekly basis, and sometimes in crunch times, on a daily basis, every couple of days, you are in touch with the director or the DP to say like, what do we absolutely have to have? We're wrapping out of this particular location. For that budget level, you never have the luxury of going back. Even things like, what's your wish list? And as that wish list gets smaller and smaller, things like, please get me a night exterior for this just so we have it in case we need a transition. Please get me a daytime exterior. So we're constantly in dialogue. And I was sending him scenes pretty much at the end of every week. So they would shoot and pretty much I was always up to camera, but maybe not every scene that they shot by Friday, but sending him enough scenes to give him a sense of where he was. Not just in terms of planning, but I think emotionally it was important for him to feel like, okay, We've got a film. The performances are as genuine as I feel that they are. There is a chemistry that's happening in the family that we see on set, but it's translating to the screen. And 
you know, obviously the scenes aren't perfect in terms of what he wants, but I think there was enough there that it gave him a sense of, okay, well, we can keep doing the things that we're doing. And the compromises that we're having to make aren't hurting the film. And I think that that buoyed his spirits while they were shooting. We made adjustments too, in terms of like, what do we have to have? What can we cut? How can we simplify the blocking of this particular scene so that it's three setups instead of five, that type of thing. And so it was wonderful to be in dialogue with Isaac in that way through the shoot. And did you feel because of that real important need, as almost always happens, right, that you need to wrap out of a location? And did you feel like during dailies you needed to edit in a certain way to make it faster so that you were more confident that you had what you needed? I don't know if I needed to move faster than felt comfortable in a way, just because, again, because they were being so aggressive with schedule and were so budget constrained, I never had an overwhelming amount of dailies. And I could see by the decisions that Isaac and his incredible DP, Lachlan Milne, were making that... I could see very clearly what they were after more often than not. And so it helped me to sort of get to a pretty good cut quickly because I didn't have to kind of wade through two or three cameras worth of footage for any particular scene. So I didn't have to rush. And I think because of the way that they were communicating through their setups and where they landed at the final take were pretty clear that I got to a cut pretty quickly. There wasn't a lot of ambiguity. Were they shooting multi-camera? It looked to me like it was truly single camera, but you never know. Yeah, it was single camera pretty much on everything except for some of the set piece scenes that you see towards the end. Yeah, just the composition and the care felt very designed specifically for like, oh, we're not just going to put a couple of cameras on a couple of actors and let them do their thing, you know? Yeah, it was so, I don't know, I was so impressed. From day one, you felt like the amount of attention and desire to elevate the material coming from Isaac and Lachlan's shot design. There was a real confidence there. And I think part of it comes from the fact that this is Isaac's fourth or fifth feature film that he's done. And so there isn't that unnecessary experimentation. There isn't that necessary sort of, oh, I have to get this safety angle, etc. There was a real confidence that I saw in the dailies, which was great. And I think what Lachlan brought to the table was just, he had such great instincts for making the frame look like so much more than our budget. It was like magic. And I'm not a DP, so I don't know what lenses they were choosing or what combination of camera and lenses, but it just really elevated the material. There were like simple, beautiful decisions that they were making that just created a gorgeous frame. And I was like, I can't believe they're doing this with the time that they have and the budget that they have. And it just really excited me because it made me feel like, oh, wow, they're really bringing their A-game. It inspires you to work that much harder to honor that effort that production is doing. One of the very first things I noticed about the film was a definite sense of perspective. I felt like the cameras were always kind of low. I guess it's kind of the autobiographical thing is from the child's point of view, right? More than the father. Very much so. Yeah, that's a wonderful observation because the script began as a series of journaled memories that Isaac had about his childhood. And what prompted him to begin that process of recalling these moments was that he became a father and he was looking at his daughter and thinking, what is she going to recall? But also, what can I tell her about what my life was like at this age? 
And so he sort of collected these poignant and funny and sometimes tragic memories, and that formed the backbone of the script. And so the fact that that's translating onto the screen is, I think, a testament to his qualities as a director, is to be able to convey that perspective. Even though young David, his proxy on screen, isn't in every scene, I think that point of view is the lens through which we see all these characters. And it's kind of a double vision in a way, right? Because there's no way that young David could have the level of maturity to see the nuances of what's going on with his parents, right? But that's kind of the perspective of older David or Isaac in looking back, right? Is that he can see how fully fleshed out their issues and their problems are, their goals and dreams in a way that we often can't when we're young. And we can only see once we've achieved adulthood as well and sort of can empathize in a deeper way. And so I feel like you get both of those perspectives and it's moving to see the, I guess, the grace with which you can view both the sort of virtues and the flaws of the people you love the most. Yeah. And as you said, the boy couldn't have seen everything. Like there were times when parents were like, we're going to have a big fight. You better go someplace else, <laughs> right? And, but, and then you see the fight, which is obviously not from his perspective or the argument. But I think that even from that, you can take, if it's an autobiographical film, he knows his parents well enough. He knows the outcome of what happened in their lives. The boy knows what happens. There's a perspective from the boy's perspective. Exactly, yeah. Yeah, I really loved it. And talk to me about performance and how you judge performance when you're looking at dailies because, man, the performances were so honest and just real to me. Like, I absolutely did not feel like I was watching actors. Yeah, it's wonderful. I think, first, you have the luxury of, some incredible actors. Like, for example, Yoon Yeo-jung, who plays the grandma, is like, I've heard her referred to as the Meryl Streep of Korea. Like, she's kind of a legend <laughs> in Korea. When I was telling my parents who was in my movie, they're like, oh, I think I don't, I think I know Stephen Yoon. I, I think I know who that person is. And then they're like, oh, Yoon Yeo-jung, she's oh. in your movie. It's a real movie then. Like, <laughs> so, so, I mean, you have, you know, people who are kind of legendary. And then like you have someone like Han Yeti who plays the mom, who's so incredible and just so embodies that outwardly gentle, but inwardly like steel quality that so many immigrant moms have. And then the kids are incredible. And Steven just brings such depth and understanding to his character because I feel like he's witnessed it. He's witnessed what that father goes through, perhaps in watching his own father. And I think you have the luxury of beginning with those performances. But I think the most important thing was that both in Isaac's direction and in the choices we were making is that we wanted to keep all of the sincerity and all of the truth and no more, right? So we're constantly looking for those moments where it wasn't too much and pulling back and letting the way that the actors were embodying the characters versus maybe a two on the nose line or two strident a gesture or something like that to pull back on those things and more sort of just have enough of the performance and no more in each case. And I think that's what Isaac was striving for, especially in directing the kids, because I think that's such a subtle thing, right? Because especially the more experienced the kids are, the more they can kind of go into 
particular gestural things and sticky things that they know work. Schmacting. Yeah, exactly. So I think he was so good about putting them in a place where they could respond emotionally. Like, for example, in the scene where David's being punished for something terrible he does to his grandmother, there was a seriousness with which all the actors and Isaac as a director, there was a sternness with which they were talking to Alan, not in any cruel way, but in saying, like, this is very serious. There's a tone that they were taking to just get Alan to sort of come on board to be like, oh man, I really have to be on my best behavior here. I really have to be contrite. And even between takes, they kept up that atmosphere. So I think they were really good about creating opportunities where the actors could be really in the moment and in these characters versus having to play them out. And that made it easy to choose the best performances. One of the things that I would be interested in hearing you talk about is the grandmother and the tone of her performance and not letting it go too far, maybe. She's kind of the comic relief and what a great character. I mean, I told my wife, I'm like, she kind of reminds me of your mom, you know, <laughs> she, my, my, her mom taught our kids to play poker, you know, and yeah. the grandma's teaching the kids to play some kind of card game, right? Not poker probably, but I think that's why she feels so real is she's not, I guess the idealized vision of like yeah. <laughs> a perfect angelic grandma that we come to know, I guess, in the sort of cultural mythology of our stories. Right. But Someone who's as real and as with idiosyncrasies and bad habits and things like that. The fact that she watches too much TV, she watches wrestling instead of like... <laughs> Pro wrestling. Really to the kids. And that she's not the great cook that everybody expects her to be. And I feel like Yoon Yeo-jung knows that person. She actually has had a really unconventional life for a Korean actor of her generation and has come up on top of a lot of tragedy in her own life. And so I feel like she embodies that not just sort of resilience, but resilience after making choices that are unconventional choices. And so I feel like she was able to really embody that character and knew that character. And what's amazing is that she's such an experienced screen actor, even though she's just living the character, she's always aware of where the camera is. And she's always aware of the timing of a particular scene, not just comic timing, but if the camera's moving, where is it? If the camera's behind her, how do I adjust my performance? It just felt right every time. And I think that that's just a testament to her level of experience and her gift. Yeah, I, I, I loved all of that stuff. Let's talk about the evolution from your first editor's cut to where the film ended up. I think we had a really strong cut uh, out the gate, the editor's cut. And I think it was a good evocation of the script in its entirety. And one of the things in looking back at where we ended up with the film was it was very clearly a process of removing good things, things that were working that didn't serve to focus the audience's attention on what became very clear was the story, right, which was really focusing on her family. Because I think in telling the story of the family, there were moments in the script and that were shot that were forays in particular to the world in their town outside of their family. So with secondary characters, really fleshing out what is this world that they're interacting with, particularly with the non-Korean characters in the movie. And one of the things we found was as rich and as successful as those second storylines or those little detours were, 
was that they had a positive effect of fleshing out the town and the world and the completeness of Isaac's memory, right? But they distracted a little bit in terms of our attention and our focus on some of the subtle things that the family members were going through at the time. And so because it's such an elliptical script, like you're jumping from incident to incident to incident, and you're not always sure how much time is going past in this family story. There isn't a ticking clock. There's no something that tells you, oh, it's been three months later or six months later, that type of thing. It's very elliptical in that way. We found that it was really important for the audience to connect the emotional dots of, oh, this is how David is experiencing the frustration of his father. Or, oh, this is how it's really landing on the wife of what is happening with the farm, that type of thing. And we found that the more we took out some of this additional bonus material in a way, the more it really kept you emotionally in tune with what was going on with the family. And so that was the process. But it was hard to see that initially because so many of these sequences in and of themselves were so good. There's actually a bike scene that you see in the trailer where the two kids are kind of yelling out as they're riding their bicycles. That was one of the last things that we cut because it was on its own, was hands down one of the funniest, most exultant scenes that we had. But that moment and where it landed in the film and how it distracted us emotionally and took us down a totally different emotional path worked so well, but it sort of distracted us from where we should be in the overall calculus of tracking where the character should be emotionally. And so that was really eye-opening for me. It reminded me again of how, particularly at that late stage in a feature cut, so much of it is about taking things away rather than adding things, right? So much of it is about trying to get to that perfect geometric proof, which is one step less in the proof so that you can achieve the elegance that you want the audience to feel. And that's a lot of what the process was. Asking Isaac's permission and then all of us agreeing based on audience feedback and our own analysis of that. What else can we take away? What else can we remove to make what's left even more muscular and the architecture that much more elegant? And I feel like we got to a really good place where we all felt very confident in those decisions. But we're very excited for people to see deleted scenes because that, that one, <laughs> <That's a good laughs> one. There's a couple scenes that are pretty great. Yeah. We'll be back in a moment with more of my interview with Harry Yoon. Today's episode of the Art of the Cut podcast is brought to you by FilmTools.com. Since 1996, FilmTools has been Hollywood's one-stop shop for all things production and post. No matter your filmmaking needs, FilmTools has you covered when you need gear for your next shoot or edit. This week, FilmTools is offering Art of the Cut listeners 10% off thousands of products when shopping on FilmTools.com. All you have to do is enter code AOTC10 at checkout. That's AOTC10 at checkout to get 10% off your purchase on FilmTools.com. So whether you need a GTEC hard drive or an Airy Sky panel, make sure to head over to FilmTools.com and check out with discount code AOTC10 to get 10% off your next equipment purchase. And now back to my interview with Harry Yoon. It may seem like we're done with that topic, but I am really fascinated with it because I think it's going to hold some good meat for editors to think about, which is this scene, which you've described as being a really good scene, and it's going to go. And I am fascinated by what the discussion would have been 
and if you can, without revealing anything too much about the movie, how was that scene taking it other than just being a tangent? How was it taking it in the wrong emotional direction for what happened next when you took that scene out? It's really interesting because that scene was singing so well. In fact, it broke all of our hearts because our incredible composer, Emil Mosseri, he just wrote an incredible piece of music. It was just singing. We just loved it. Even in screenings, we were all looking forward to that scene. And, you know, it's just, but I think- How does it go out? That's crazy. You know, I, I understand it though. So the only way is to do it and to see it and to see it with an audience. And that's the thing is like, I think what was great about Isaac was that he was fearless about trying things. Because when we were making the decision to take it out, we weren't sure. In fact, for a long time, we had to kind of sit with it. And that's the kind of scene where you have to rewatch the whole movie in order to sort of see... Yeah, you don't back up five minutes. Exactly. Because it's much harder to calculate the impact of an absence than the impact of an addition, right? So... You can sort of make very good arguments before you watch it and experience it as far as why we need to add this piece of information or this emotional data point. But it's much harder to get the total calculation of what an absence feels like. And so you have to watch it. You have to do it and then see what results. But what was really lovely was when we did do it, along with some other adjustments in that area, when you juxtapose things that weren't juxtaposed before, those kinds of collisions create really interesting emotional impacts that you didn't see before. Even visual impacts. There were things where we took out big chunk in that sequence, and then all of a sudden, the lighting of a toothbrushing scene and the lighting of a scene of the mom in the hospital, right? Boom, like those two scenes, and actually even the ways that the character were moving, we'd never seen that juxtaposition before. It's as if we planned it to say, like, see how these people are, even when they're separated, they're kind of connected by gesture and lighting and things. And so there's ways that those collapses create those beautiful moments. And it reminded me a lot of a friend of mine was uh, one of the additional editors on Terrence Malick's Tree of Life. And her job was to come in at night and literally randomly lift out sections from the other editors' timelines <laughs> and then to see are there interesting collisions that happen of dialogue, voiceover, or picture that then she would save as subclips to show the editors the next day. And so there's a way that that kind of process can be so creative that really experienced filmmakers like Terrence Malick sort of rely on that to sort of take us out of our presuppositions about what's there, even in the material that we have. And so that's what convinced us was not necessarily, oh, we don't miss it, but it was more like, oh my gosh, we didn't realize it would have this impact. We didn't realize that it would really help this other thing that we were trying to do. So I think bottom line, I think the practical takeaway from that is you have to try everything because there will be results from the removal. There will be results that you are not anticipating. And to me, like, that's why I love editing so much. It's because it's constantly, you're always the first audience to see something magical when it happens. And as smart as you are, as experienced as you are, that surprise juxtaposition and the way that your brain creates meaning out of it is like magic. I mean, that's the thing that I think makes it so special as a process. Yeah. 
I was just having a conversation with my brother. Both of our kids are engineers. And his son said, oh, I, I always feel bad because I never come up with the answer the first time. And I said, <laughs> well, we have these discussions about editing all the time. And almost nobody comes up with the answer the first time. And sometimes it's coming up with the wrong answer that gets you to the right answer. And you couldn't have gotten there without going through the wrong answer. Completely. Yeah. And I think the really important observation, I think that really helps us to get to that place is let's try to get as much of our ego out of the process as possible. If you're upset that you don't get it the first time because you feel like your identity or your ego depends upon... Getting oh, it right. identity and ego, 100%. Yeah, <laughs> I want to get this right at the beginning. Yeah. But if you practice, I guess, a kind of creative humility then it's okay. You know, however, which way you get there, you're going to get there. But if you're fighting a tooth and claw, then you're not. If your ego and your identity depends on your fighting for a particular cut or a particular fixed way of looking at a scene or a sequence, then you're sort of robbing yourself of the opportunity for those creative moments and you're robbing the project. What was the emotional throughput or emotional arc that it helped keep clean? The strongest arc that it sort of reattached in a way was keeping the young boy's POV about what was happening with his father at that time. Because as you recall that that visit to his friend's house happens relatively late in the film where you're starting to get a strong sense that the farm is not doing well. And when that sequence became about David's exploration of the outside world and of his friend's strange and crazy customs that were so different from the Korean customs that he was used to, it was a nice counterpoint emotional beat to what was going on. And also, it did give you a sense of David's innocence in what was happening. But I think in making it less big, of an experience for him, kept him, even though when he, he was over at his friend's house, it kept him emotionally thinking about what was going on back at home. And that was most visible in the breakfast scene where he spends the night at his friend's house. And then the next day when he's at breakfast with his friend's father figure, it's actually his mother's boyfriend. For all intents and purposes, it seems like his dad. That scene used to play out with a couple of other really important details. It distracted you from kind of what was being said at the breakfast table, which was this conversation about how is your dad doing on his farm? But the whole time you're just wondering, oh shoot, is he going to hit David or is he going to do something weird or rash or something like that? Whereas if you take that away and you also take away the kind of distraction of being in another world, his questions really point David emotionally back to thinking about his father. How like he actually maybe hasn't even articulated, how is my father doing? How is he doing on the farm? Is he okay? And I think... It's exactly what you were talking about at the beginning of our conversation, where you really feel such a strong sense of David's perspective. And that's what emotionally anchors the film. And in removing a lot of those nuances, we really refocused, I think, the audience's emotional focus on how is David feeling about this? And I think that leads into a more contemplative sequence where you start to see physically the toll that it's taking, emotionally the toll that it's taking on his father and on his parents. It was a much clearer transition emotionally in the story 
that we hadn't had when that sequence was bigger, longer, and with all these other details, emotional details. That's so interesting. And so for those that get a chance to see the film, where did that bicycle scene happen? The bicycle scene and the breakfast scene obviously come close together. Where did they happen in the film? So there's a moment when mom asks the kids to spend the night over at their friend's house because grandma's in the hospital. That's when that whole sequence took place, when David goes to spend the night over at his friend's house. Got it. I I love all of that. What else do you want to talk about with this film? Were there challenges, structural things that had to change? It seemed pretty linear. There's one thing that I think really stands out for me editorially is the impact that Emil Mosseri's music had on our process. I was lucky enough to hear some of Emil's music because he did the score for Last Black Man in San Francisco. And he just created one of the most gorgeous scores I've heard in a long time in record time in a really sort of like impossible deadline. And so it just really spoke to his talent at narrowing in on profound emotions with limited resources and limited time. But what was great for Emil was he was in conversation with Isaac during pre-production. And because his girlfriend was from Tulsa, they actually got to visit the set and see what that set looked like and feel what was going on with the family and to really get insight into it. And even before they shot, actually, Emil wrote a couple of sketches based on the script and on his conversations with Isaac. And Isaac would listen to some of those sketches as he was driving to set. And I listened to the sketches before I cut a frame. There was a way that, you know how like music operates in you in different areas of your brain and your emotions and things like that. I feel like it was a story, there was a tone that Emil was downloading into our brains. And I feel like infused what they were shooting and infused the editorial direction and the tone of what we were cutting. And I feel like it found this really beautiful expression in that I used one of his sketches to cut together a wrap party gift for the crew to thank them because they had worked so hard to put together such beautiful footage in spite of really challenging circumstances. And it was a chance to share that melding of everything that the crew had done with this incredible, beautiful music that I think it brought tears to a lot of people's eyes because it just gave them a sense of, wow, like this is one of those rare instances in which everybody has this sense of what True North is on this film. And it's really brought us together with that common purpose. And it's been rare, unfortunately, for a composer to be able to have that kind of influence because they're often brought in so late in the process. But in this film in particular, you saw how powerful that could be in shaping how Isaac's experience of production and my experience early on in editorial. So yeah, I'm really, really excited for people to hear the score. Can you describe the score? Because it really was kind of magical. I mean, I I loved the music. I'm surprised that I didn't bring it up myself, but I just forgot. It's sort of lush and sweeping, but with voices that feel unusual and feel more like a memory than fully present. And there's sort of ethereal qualities that he uses, like a slightly, a tiny bit like out of tune piano. It's not a perfect 
Yamaha or Steinway. It's like this older piano, right? Like that he uses. He's a singer songwriter in his own right. So he has this gorgeous falsetto that he records and overdubs. And so you hear a voice that's been transformed into this falsetto chorus as, as an element in the film. And so all of these kind of unusual elements give you a sense of otherworldliness. And yet it's still grounded in, I think, sort of these beautiful melodies and themes that he's able to write. And I think it just feels familiar in its emotions, but unusual enough and fresh in its instrumentation and orchestration that it feels new. It feels like you're rediscovering something that feels true. If I was rude, I would go off right now and buy it on iTunes. I'm going to have to remind, <laughs> remind myself, hey, you really need that soundtrack. Yeah, It's really a great soundtrack. Any other thoughts on... I can tell you sort of what personally this film means for me. And I'm really, really excited that there's awards buzz and things like that. I feel like, I mean, that's what you kind of dream about that. And you dream about it because it's always so out of your control, especially as an editor. It has to do with the project, the gifts of your collaborators, and I think the vagaries of taste and whatever is of the moment. And all those things are so out of your control. But I think what really was personally meaningful for me was that first screening in the library theater at Sundance in our premiere. And I was lucky enough to sit in front of all of these parents, right? Like Stephen Young's dad and his family, his parents and Isaac's parents and Christina's parents. And you know how like in certain audience screenings, you can feel the emotion from behind you and the hairs on the back of your neck kind of stand up and you're like, it's working. There's people are responding. And to know that the parents were seeing themselves and they were so moved by being seen. That's what I feel like has been the gift of this movie. And what I'm most looking forward to is when it's possible, hopefully soon, I kind of want to just buy out a couple of rows in a theater for my parents and their friends and all the people we kind of grew up with and just get them into the theater to watch this movie. Because I think it's just so rare when you get an opportunity as a storyteller to tell a story that's so intimate that you know the people that you love and are really close to you will be able to really appreciate and to feel seen. And I think that's what I'm most looking forward to beyond any awards or beyond any accolade. It's that screening at that moment that I just feel so grateful for. If this was more of a... Crazy Rich Asians movie, I wouldn't ask you how your personal voice as a Korean played into being able to be an artist on this film. But with this emotional, personal storytelling, I will ask you that. How, <laughs> yeah. how important was it for you to just be you? I think my personal experience is what allowed me to gel and to find common ground with Isaac the director. It's what connected Christina O, oh, the producer, and I, you know, on a different project. But us being able to say, we have this in common, and we can understand this in a way where no translation is necessary. Like, literally, I remember screening a scene for our post-supervisor, and he's like, that's great. I wish I knew what they were saying. And I realized, like, oh, wait, you need subtitles. Like, <laughs> Because we were cutting in Korean the whole time and like as a mixture of Korean and English. And I was so sort of deeply involved in it that I forgot that somebody's not going to know what they're saying. And so... But that is not a foregone conclusion that someone of your generation would speak Korean. Yeah, 
Exactly. Because a lot of us are first generation immigrants. You know, I was born in Korea and I came here when I was five years old. And English is my second language, although it's my primary language now, having forgotten a lot of Korean. But thankfully, I know enough where I could understand the majority of what was being said. And I think that just sort of very practically, that biographical connection to being Korean American and to being an immigrant was important. But I think emotionally, I feel I could really understand moment to moment what the characters were going through and what Isaac was remembering through these characters because I had lived a lot of these moments. When you grow up with immigrant parents who are small business people, you see a lot of that conflict and you see a lot of that pain and you see the roller coaster ride of emotions, of the loss of dignity, the conflict that happens when both parents have good intentions. They're doing it for the right reasons, but they're colliding because practically there aren't enough resources or time or luck in order for both people's desires to be manifest. I think I knew that very intimately. And so I think it gave Isaac and I a shorthand in being able to get at the essence of certain scenes and hopefully get at the essence of the movie in general. I've got one final question for you, which is, and I'd have to go back and watch the film again for me to have a real like memory or understanding of how much you cut. But honestly, my recollection of this film is almost every scene is a wonner. <laughs> I know that's not true. I know that's yeah. not true, but the scenes are very cut in a very limited, disciplined way. I have to say, congratulations to you. Thank Did you. you find that you cut them too much at the beginning and came back? Or did you start at that position and go, you yeah, know, I'm not going to cut. I'm just going to sit on this great composition and these great performances. And this is where I'm going to stay until I have to go someplace else. It's interesting because I think there are slightly different styles from scene to scene. Oh, yeah. I mean, the big, you know, big yeah. scene at the end, obviously, is you know fast cut. But and- for example, the way that he shot the scene where Paul is walking through the house, anointing it with oil and saying these prayers to sort of exercise uh, the demons that are around. That was shot in a very verite documentary style, whereas a scene like Han Yeri's wife washing Stephen Yoon's hair, that was shot in a much more proscenium style, beautifully composed, wide shot, and then only cutting in for certain grace notes of emotion right towards the end. But I think in general, because we were given the gift of beautiful frames a lot of the times, it was easier to hold because there was a lot of visual interest. And I also want to sort of bring up the incredible work of production designer Yoma Lee, who infused every frame with such interesting things. And not just interesting things, things that felt so true. I often felt like, oh my gosh, I'm looking at my house. Like I had that exact same wall hanging or my mom had that exact same wall hanging. And I think when you have somebody who is creating beautiful frames, both from a cinematography standpoint and from a production design standpoint, costumes, you name it, everybody's doing good work. I think it's easier to hold. And obviously the actors are doing great work. And so, yeah, I think... For the most part, it was to allow us to live in the moment and live in the performance and then to only cut as needed. Unless it was something that was shot more verite and should feel more dynamic and of the moment in that way. Or a sequence that's designed for more kinetic action, like towards the end, that sequence, that type of thing. But for the most part, it was to hold on these really beautiful frames. 
I love it. Congratulations to you. It's a great film. I hope everybody gets a chance to see it. It's definitely uh, worth the ride. There were so often times where I thought this is a Korean family, but like I said, that's your grandmother. That's your Irish grandmother is the same right. character, right? Exactly. It's like yeah. I just had discussions with my wife the previous night where I'm like, uh, this relationship with a husband and the wife, this is, this could be me, you know, yeah, exactly. <laughs> it's yeah. completely I mean, it's a so universal. Specific. It's, it's, yeah. it's very specific to South Korean immigrant, but it's very universal. It's a very yeah. universal story of a family. No, I, that's what I've loved is I have a Latino friend that was like, yeah, I used to watch wrestling with my grandma too. <laughs> <laughs> You would think that would be like a weird detail, but like, that's the thing is when you get specific in that way, people are like, oh my gosh, I recognize that. Yep. It feels truthful. That's it for Art of the Cut this week. Thanks for listening. Also, check out ProVideoCoalition.com for more than 300 interviews with the world's top editors. Or read the book, Art of the Cut, Conversations with Film and TV Editors, for a topic-driven, curated experience. Thanks again to my guest, Harry Yoon, ACE. Also, thanks to Jake Gum, who edited this episode using Adobe Audition. And to Paul McKenna for mixing and mastering. If this is a podcast that you got something out of, follow me on Twitter and Instagram at at Steve Hullfish. I hope you subscribe to this podcast and give it a review, please. And finally... Be sure to share them with a film-making or film-loving friend.